Welcome to ContenderCast, a leadership conversation centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. This is the ContenderCast. Welcome. My name is Justin Hahnemann, and our mission is simple to shine a light on bright ideas. And I am super excited because today um, we are talking sales and sales training, sales effectiveness, um, how to sell, what makes a great sales team, um, and and so much more, which is one of my favorite topics. And, and I'll, I'll share a little more about that later. But with me today is one of my great friends, Warren Shiver. So Warren, thanks for jumping on. Happy to be here. Thanks, Justin. All right. So Warren is the CEO and founder of a company called Symmetrics Group, and he formed that in 2010. And he's also the author of a great book called Multi-Generational um, Sales Teams. And so Warren, let's jump in with talking about your company and and why you set up Symmetrics Group. Yeah, Justin, thanks. Like you, we, uh, we're passionate about B2B sales, right? So we love selling, love working with sales teams. It's something that I myself and most of our team has experience with. Right? Sure. So we've uh, got people that have carried the bag before, so to speak. We've got people that have been sales leaders, sales trainers, and we really wanted to bring the best to bear of what a consulting firm could do with a client in terms of custom work that's relevant and approachable for that their model or their company. Also with the implementation capabilities of a training firm. So don't, don't just hand us a PowerPoint deck. Actually, right. hand us the deck and the strategy, but help us put it into action. Help us put it into place. So in your background, you know, mechanical engineer and MBA from Duke, um, you were in management consulting, also an Anderson Consulting guy, right? Started That's right. Started out of college. That's right. Um, so you're in management consulting and you decide, you know what, I'm going to walk away from that and set up my own business. So how did you get to that decision point? You know, recessions are a great time to start a <laughs> right. business, right? You know, right. 2010. <laughs> No, it's, it was really a couple things. I was working for a great firm at the, at the time, North Highland, based here in Atlanta with you and myself, and yep. you know, really uh, enjoyed working with Dave Peterson, Dan Reardon. Sure. And they would Two talk the about- founders, by Yeah, the way, they would talk that. about some of the early days of starting North Highland and what that was like. And they were real, I guess, intentional about preserving the culture and telling stories from the early days in the 1990s sure. when they started. And so I think that was something that was intriguing to me, right? Working and building something from the ground up, creating something from nothing. And also you learn all these things in consulting and business school sure. around HR, marketing, hiring people, firing people, right? Selling, building product. So I just wanted an opportunity to get my hands on all the levers of a business and see what I was good at and, and what I'm not. And how did you decide to get into the sales space? In other words, like how did you choose this area to focus on from a services perspective? Yeah. Well, it started, trust me, when I was looking at CAD diagrams in my mechanical engineering days. <laughs> really? <laughs> when you talked about bright ideas and bright people, right. I'm not a bright person. So, <laughs> oh, come on. Give me a break. Uh, but yeah, when I was uh, working for Anderson Consulting back in the 90s, uh, my wife Paige worked for PeopleSoft at the time, oh, yes. real high-performing you know, HR software company. Yep. And I got to hang around a lot of sales people, both with her job and then with sales clubs, et cetera. And I just gravitated towards that as a profession. So I was able to land in 1999 with a small sales training firm in Atlanta that was called On Target. And they wanted to start a consulting practice around their sales training. So it was a great bridge for me to leverage my management consulting background, but get closer to sales. Got it. All right. So you decide you're going to start the business. Um, I think a lot of our listeners have probably thought about or or engaged in starting their own business. Um, and then what were the keys to getting it set up? You know, was it getting that first client? Was it finding the right people to work with? And what were the kind of those first couple months and year? What did that look like? Yes and yes. Okay. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, the beautiful thing is is you appreciate and some of your obviously your listeners appreciate, you know, a services firm is is easy to start. The barriers to entry are low. Right. 
fortunately, I didn't have to mortgage my house to build a product you right, know, and, true. and get out there. Yep. So that was good. But yeah, I think also the flip side of that is, is you've got to have something that's different. You know, what's your offering going to be? And for the most part, our offering is talent, right? We need to bring, we have some great ideas. We've developed our own training and ideas on sales over the years. But to your point, the first thing was, how can I build a team? So when I go out and start selling our sales consulting services, sure. there's actually somebody to deliver. Got it. So you get into the sales space. What did the first couple of engagements look like? Did you Because you didn't have maybe content then, or did, were you creating content with clients or how did that work out? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. But yeah, to your point, um, you know, I was fortunate to have, you know, not quite to your level, Justin, but Whatever. I was fortunate to have a, a, a pretty good network, right? Um, so while honoring, you know, the non-solicit agreement for my prior uh, employer, I was able to go out and find some small engagements. And fortunately, and we wrote about this in our first book, Seven Steps to Salesforce Transformation, Perfect. Um, we found this company, Central Garden and Pet, that had a headquarters here in Atlanta, and that turned into one of our anchor clients, and we're still working with them uh, seven years later. Wow, that's awesome and great reference. Um, all right, so you you get the company going. You're in the sales space. Uh, a lot of us listening to the podcast are in sales or in business development or or account management and whatnot. You've walked into many different environments now, um, big companies and small. What have you seen? You know, when you walk in and you know. Wow, this this is a pretty high performing sales organization. Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. Uh, one, and this is probably obvious, but I think it starts at the top, right? What's the what's the top sales level sales leader look like? You know, is she dynamic? Is she engaged? Does she want to scale a team? Is it all about him or her? Is the leader right? So I think you first look at the leadership that's involved from the top all the way down to the first level leadership, right? Because that's the linchpin of any team organizations, certainly in sales. And then I think second, we look at, you know, is how important is the sales function of the business? Meaning, is it a company like Siebel Systems, who I worked for in the late 90s, where you're selling such a hot product at the time that you're not really selling, you're taking orders. You're taking orders. Yeah. So, you know, that doesn't seem to exist outside of Silicon Valley right now as much as it as it did in periods. But right. I think we want to look at from a sales perspective, what's the contribution of the sales force itself to the value of what's being sold? And that's that's also telling. That's interesting. Yeah, that's one of the topics I plan for us to cover today. And then on the flip side of that, you've probably walked into some businesses and you've thought, oh my gosh, these people need some major help. Uh, and maybe it's recognized and maybe it's not recognized, but what are some of the symptoms or some of the indicators that you've seen around that type of environment? Yeah, I think one of our favorite indicators, Justin, is what we would call participation rate. So if you look across the team as a whole or even individual sales teams, how many of those sellers are making their number, right? So if you're a high-performing manager, Justin, yourself, sure. and you've got a team of 10, are you making your number as a, as a manager and as a team by one or two people that are 400% of their quota? Or are you making their number because eight out, of your, eight out of 10 of your team members are successful? So I think when you see sales teams that have scaled rapidly and are often in disarray, I think that's one thing to look look for, right? Is how, how broad-based is the success versus one or two or three top performers? Absolutely. I could think of some environments I've seen on both sides of the right. fence there. Um, you, you talk about different types of salespeople. And one of the um, the ideas that I often hear is there's a difference between hunters and farmers. 
What is your perspective on that? And ha- where have you seen that play out in terms of the value of each? Yeah, I think uh, a lot's been made of it. I do think also to your point, I think one of the things we could talk about are salespeople made or born, right? right? Or exactly. some combination or of both, yes. right? Yeah. So I think with hunters and farmers, I think it's to some extent preference versus competence, right? So truly, if you're a hunter, you obviously have high extrovert skills and a desire and a preference to go out and knock down new logos, Absolutely. develop new relationships, totally. right? Bring it in. You, you, and, thrive on that. And right? it's maybe that's you don't have the competence for it, but you don't have a preference for sticking around. You don't want to be going to the same office for two or three years, working, you know, in implementation, you know, doing all of that, right? Conversely, I've seen some really strong account managers that don't want to be involved in the, you know, in somewhat the high friction upfront right. sale, right. but they love building relationships. And once they have a relationship, they're very comfortable and adept at managing that and also organizing teams around delivery. So I do think I do think there can be a blend of those roles in some companies, but I do think there are there is a different level of competence and certainly preference for those two different sales roles. Yeah, I think for me, like my preference is in my like passion is in the upfront work, right? <laughs> right? So the, it's not that you couldn't do the account management, right? But you, know, you know, that's not what you I would choose love to do. That. I thrive on figuring out the connections yeah. and the angles and what their needs are, right? I mean, yep. and I can't imagine, you know, a year or two of... Anyway, so anyway, not about me. Um, all right. So one of the things that makes uh, your company interesting, Warren, is your approach. And I think um, one of the the or that's really a differentiator for you guys beyond your people, right? So talk a little bit about your, you know, the thinking preferences and your model around Salesforce transformation, um, thinking about multi-generational sales, et cetera. Yeah. So I think to your point, I guess two points, you know, one, uh, from an overall approach, we really focus on two areas, right? Strategy and structure, and then really implementation. So strategy and structure, meaning, hey, you know, company A has just bought company B, or to give you a specific example, like Cox Automotive here in town, right? Which most of your listeners are familiar with. Sure. You know, they've historically gone to market directly with some of their component brands, Mannheim, Auto Trader, et cetera, Dior Track. And some of their largest customers came to them and said, hey, why don't I have eight different sales reps from eight different brands at Cox Auto come into my dealerships? Can I have more of an integrated approach? So we help them build basically a new enterprise account team structure, right? And did that analysis work and put that into place and then did some training around how do you engage with a customer? If you previously only sold one solution, now how do you represent the full bag and bring a team of experts in, et cetera? So a lot of our work spans both strategy and structure and then also training, process, rollout, implementation. So that's one piece. With the latter, to your point, we like to look at a lot of different lenses by sure. which how to affect sales performance. Yep. One of them, we love this tool called HBDI that you're yep. familiar with. Very familiar with Mo Bonnell here dominance. in town yep. actually introduced me to that tool yep. um, 10 years ago. And it's a great tool, again, for thinking about how in the world of sales, how do people process and communicate information and Qu- how will question. they make a decision? Is it based on relationship? Is it based on the... Uh, pivot table in my Excel business case, right? right? You know, and you know, how is that, how does that work? And then increasingly, we've done a lot of research recently around different generations in the sales force. And as you referenced earlier, we wrote a book this year called the multi-generational sales team, which is out. And we've had a lot of fun working with companies and sales teams around the topic of, Hey, if you're selling to millennials, what does that look like? Or if you're a Gen X or baby boomer manager and you've got a team of millennials, what's some of the friction that comes up there and how do you overcome it? So- that's interesting. Yeah. So HBDI, for those that may not be familiar, Herman Brain Dominance Instrument, a great uh, profile tool, I'll call uh, call it, for understanding your own 
preferences and where you like to operate. So for example, and as Warren was saying, are you a heavy numbers person? Do you love just the spreadsheets and the models and whatnot? Or do you love getting things done? You make to-do lists and you check those those things off your list and you're more of a programmer project management person. Uh, the third quadrant is one that's very like an, almost an expressive or a relationship oriented um type focus. And then the fourth quadrant is the creativity quotient or the, you know, where does that sit for you? And what's great about that is having a tool like that or Myers-Briggs or others is that it helps you to understand your own strengths or preferences and how you operate. And then also be thinking about how when you go meet with a client, you're almost trying to, if you don't know them, read that ahead of time so you can speak their language, right? Um, or when you're in the, like on the fly in a meeting, almost trying to gauge where that person or persons sit in there so you can communicate effectively with yeah. them, right? So I think that's, that's right. one of the Beautiful. coolest things about it. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit more about multi-generational selling. So w- what does that mean? And then how have you broken it out? Yeah. So you know what we saw was there's a tremendous amount of information out there about the generations, right? And you've got your classic, you know, right now the millennials, Gen X, and baby boomers are the three main ones in the workforce. Although the so-called Gen Z, who represents my kids, are quickly quickly coming from behind here. <laughs> right, uh, Gen so Z. Gen, Is that what it's called? Gen Z. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. Uh, the ones that were coding apps on their iPhone, you know, before right. they could walk, <laughs> right. kind of kind of generation, yep. but. Yeah, quick story is to give you an example. So we uh, work with a small high-tech firm here in Atlanta. They're basically selling to ad agencies. Got it. And so one of our friends is a, is a sales manager there. He's 47 years old, similar to me, probably to you as well. And uh, so we were asking him, you know, what's it like in your environment? He's got a team of basically millennials. And he's like, you know, it's really interesting. I've had to adjust some of my expectations and kind of how I manage accordingly. And we're like, well, give us an example, Mike. What does that look like? And he's like, well, let me give you an example. So it's the end of Q3. Uh, I've got a team member in Chicago and she calls me up and she's like, hey, Mike, I need your approval to travel to New York to try to close this deal. And he's like, okay, I know the deal. Yeah, done. Okay, but by the way, what are you going to do? Are you going to take him to dinner? What are you going to do? She's like, no, um, I've got these two passes in th- to this exclusive spin class with this instructor that's super, you know, soul cycle, sure. super hard to get into. So I'm going to fly in. I'm going to meet my two clients at the spin class. We're going to exercise together. Then we're going to go out for a drink. and I'm going to close the deal. And Mike's telling me this story. And Mike's like, I can't imagine seeing my prospects or clients in spandex right. unless asking them or to work asking out. them to do that. He's like, right. my expectation was you fly and you do the proverbial steak dinner, right. you know, and you knock yep. it out. So he's like, he's like, that's a pretty basic example, but he's like, it's an example of how I've had to reorient some of my mindset around that type of BD activity, but also, you know, the feedback that I give them, the team, how we're incenting the team, their need for more constant you know, promotion, career development. Sure. So it's really interesting. So we got really fascinated in how all that's playing out with not only within sales teams, but with sales teams and their customers. Wow. So really customizing your approach to the the type of client that might you might be pursuing. Well, and just like you were describing with the HBGI sure. model, right? So you can certainly, we all have our assumptions based on generation. Yep. So the, the, the thing is, how do you pick up some of the clues and are some of those valid and you need to adjust your style and how you build a relationship? Or... Is, is there a baby boomer who has indications of a millennial, right? Yep. And so how do you overcome some of your stereotypical assumptions as well? Okay. That's interesting. And, and uh, again, the book, I think, is I remember reading it and I, I thought some of the concepts were really interesting and made me think differently about how I approached Perfect. You know, different clients. All right. So um, last but not least on our, our podcast today, let's jump into some tactics. So how 
often do you get into actual sales tactics with sales teams versus kind of the team structure? You know, I'd say a little bit of both. I mean, it's interesting. Well, we're, I think that if we had to look at a theme around tactics sure. and, and training, if you will, in the last year or two, I'd say for a lot of sales teams, it's back to the basics, right? So the classics haven't changed, right? The relationship, et cetera. But the speed at which some of this happens and the tools and the technology right. you have available to do it does, right? Sure. So, you know, I think one of the things we were talking about beforehand, the veto, right? The letters to veto <laughs> kind of thing, yep. right? Oh you my know, gosh. Do those, they don't, they don't work. They don't work. Okay, sending random emails, phone calls, cold calling. I mean, really? Anybody who I mean, is- The CIO gets hundreds yes, of messages. Anybody there, right? who's in a, in a business-to-business relatively complex sale these days, that doesn't work. That, that that doesn't no longer breaks through the clutter of all the other vendors that are out there. Most of us are executing some form of a relationship-driven consultative sale, which is consultant speak for, you've got to get a warm introduction or build a relationship somehow to make progress in the sale. Totally agree. In fact, interesting, one of my good friends, the CIO of Conair, his name is John Harding, he was telling me that, you know, Justin, I could go to dinner every night of the week and every day I get over 100 cold calls or emails from different companies, most of whom I've never heard of. So I, I can't imagine how the veto letter gets through, which I think then touches or links back to what you were saying around trust and relationships, right? And I found that people that invest in relationships over the over time are the ones that find themselves winning in the end and that the firms that try for, or going for the quick sale or the quick close when there's not an order to be had are the ones that are typically out the door. Totally great. So, okay, what about um, a couple other tactics which I've found interesting? So, you know, being in my background, I was on the client side and, and now on the services side and before on the services side, making it personal or doing your homework up front and coming in with more of a customized approach or coming in with something that's specific related to something I'm working on or a, a client is working on or the organization is dealing with. Um, how have you seen that play out? I think to your point, I think that's spot on. I think that's an enduring trend, right? I think whether you go back to spin selling, solution selling from Mike Bosworth, challenger selling, which has kind sure. of been the, the new, new thing over the last decade from the CEB, um, all of those, the hallmark of that is focusing on the what's in it for me, right? Sure. So to speak, if you're a buyer yep, or you're them. a team, the with them, yep. exactly. Your favorite radio station <laughs> right. is the buyer. <laughs> right. But so no, I think that, I think, I think the ways some sales teams now and the sophistication by which you have to build a business case and all that, that's evolved. But I think you're exactly right. That's one of the enduring classic tips, if you sure. will, around selling. Yeah. I think another one that for me has played out just recently over the last couple of months is having the right people in the room. Um, I've had a couple of opportunities. Some have been successful and, and some have not. And the ones that have not were typically where we didn't have the right subject matter experts in the room or the right people to connect with the right clients in the room. And, you know, Figuring that out ahead of time is not always easy, yep. right? But yep. then you can when when you have the right group there, it almost manufactures its own energy. Yeah. So back to your point, one of our back to the basics focus has been on simple pre-call planning. Yeah. So tell me what's involved with that. With I you mean, guys. It's, it's exactly what you would think to use your HBDI analogy to kind of walk around the brain. What's victory look like for this meeting? Who's going to be there? What do we need to bring? Who do we need to bring? Sure. What do we need to cover in advance? And how are we going to close out on an immediate next step, right? Yep. I mean, just some of the basics. Yeah, it's interesting. The teams forget at all levels. Yeah, and I've worked at a couple places and you have too. I mean, when I was at Coca-Cola, I mean, we couldn't go to a client meeting or a customer meeting. We call it customers or not clients without a call plan yeah. and without reviewing it with the entire team and like right. completing that. Right. And other places, I mean, it's 
we'll it's all show up and meet each other at the right. at the client site. Right. We 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 I won't name names, but right. we, we did a ride along with a financial services software uh, company a couple we years all would ago know. in New York, and we so we did a ride along, and I'm with four of their team members, and in front of the client. In the meeting, they're arguing with each other over what's the best oh, yes. solution for the client. I mean, Not it's good. classic, right? Yeah. yeah. Not good. Um, 54 slides in a bus. Yeah, this is another one for me. That's, <laughs> you know, walking in the door with 14, 15, 20 people, you know, because everyone feels like they got to be there for the big meeting, right? Especially if it's a big name brand client, but that doesn't work. And neither does walking in with, you know, all of the slides on who you are without anything about how you could help. Right. Back to your, back to your with them and whoever, Mark Twain, if I'd had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Your ability to come in with something that's specific and focused shows that you care. And oftentimes that, by the way, ties to who gets the credit. Because in a lot of these sales organizations, right, everyone's trying to get quote unquote credit for these deals or get a piece of the deal. So they feel like they got to go to the meetings. Yeah, that's right. Another one, see if you would agree, that I read on uh, LinkedIn recently, which was the classic, hey, I want to let everybody know that I've been pinging this person 100,000 times over the last five years. And with no response. But they finally called me back and said, hey, you were so persistent, I'm giving you the business. (laughs) That's not ever going to happen. What do you think about that? (laughs) No, that one for me is a a non-starter. I can't imagine that that would work. But I have gotten some very creative LinkedIn emails. Not just random invite, I want to be your friend and connect, whatever, but like where someone puts some thought into it. There you go. And you know what? I responded. Yeah. Okay. What about um, the follow-up? So one of the differentiating factors I've found in um, our sales teams and others I've worked with is the those that follow up quickly, that are on it, that you know get back to you with what you needed or asked for very quickly are the ones that differentiate themselves. And it seems like blocking and tackling. But sometimes the blocking and tackling is what differentiates yourself, right? Amen. So I think you and I are both fans of Charlie Green. He wrote a book your listeners would like called Trust-Based Selling. And he has a simple <laughs> trust formula in there, right? And right. to hit your point, on the top of his equation are credibility, how credible am I or the team that I'm bringing, reliability, how reliable, back to your follow-up point, right? How intimate, which is an interesting word professionally, but how well do I know you, how you're motivated, what you're interested in, all over self-orientation. Is it all about me or is it all about you, the buyer or the company, right? So to your point, it's table stakes, but you can differentiate yourself just by prompt, accurate, thorough follow-up. Totally, totally agree. And then one more that I had written down, I thought I'd throw out here is when you create environments for leaders to connect, they're more interested in knowing you. In other words, if you're bringing value to them, if you're helping them to meet other, for example, if you're a C, if you're approaching a CMO and you're helping to introduce him or her to another CMO or other marketing leaders and creating environments for them to connect, inevitably you're going to have a relationship develop out of that. Similarly, I think it's when, I mean, it's a cliche to throw the word trusted advisor around, right? right? Everybody <laughs> wants to be a trusted advisor. Right. That but goes think, on the bingo scorecard. But I think in a related way to what you're saying, when yep. you're helping people make other connections or you tell somebody, hey, I can't do this the best that possibly could be done for you, but I know somebody who can and you make that connection that builds trust. Totally agree. All right. So um, we could go on and on, I'm sure, with this. And this is one of my favorite topics. Um, But anyway, let's let's wrap it up. So tell our listeners where they can find you, your books, and all of the information on the company and whatnot. Yep. So obviously, you can find us at our website, symmetricsgroup.com. Um, to your point around the multi-generational work, we created our own site for that. Uh, it's called multi-generationalselling.com. We do keynotes, oh, wow. we do Great. workshops around that. You can obviously see the book and some other resources there as well. And a congrats and a shout out to you, Justin, for Contender Brands. Ah, 
Got to get that plug in there for you as <laughs> thank well. You. You yeah, are, we're excited about you that. You are practicing what you preach here with these uh, <laughs> leadership podcasts. So thanks for having me and good, good luck with your, uh, your books and your products and everything you're doing. Well, Warren, thanks for being on. This has been awesome. Awesome. Appreciate right, it. For more information on today's topic or to access additional leadership content, tools, and resources, check out contenderbrands.com. Also, you can download other ContenderCast episodes directly via the Apple iTunes App Store and Google Play Store. And remember, every winner started as a contender. Contender.